On today's show, I'm joined by Academy Award-winning makeup artist Jeff Don, who, along with Stan Winston, shared the best makeup Oscar for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. How insane is that? And what's even more insane, guys, is the fact that Jeff reached out to me. Normally, I reach out to the guests and try to get them to come on. He is the first person who is a celebrity guest to have found the podcast and said, hey, can I come on? And of course I said yes. Um, And it just so happens he is an Academy Award winning guest, which is incredible. So um, we talk about everything. Uh, He has been a part of all of the Terminator productions up to Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. So we talk about the Terminator, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, uh, T2 3D Battle Across Time, which you guys know I am super passionate about and feel that it doesn't get the attention um, and the recognition and the love that it really deserves. We talk about that. He was a part of that production. One of only two so far, along with Peter Kent, guests that have been a part of all three of those productions helmed by James Cameron and of course T3. Uh, So we talk about all that stuff and everything in between. Now I do have to let you guys know the software that I use uh, to record with guests who are not in the same room as me because Jeff was in Hawaii and I'm in Florida so he definitely was not in the same room. Um, That software only allows up to two hours recording time which is great for most guests. But uh, with Jeff, him and I talked for two hours and 26 minutes. So um, unfortunately, 26 minutes of our conversation, the tail end of it is lost to the ether. But thankfully, Jeff has said that he would love to come back on for a part two. And we're going to do that because I said to him, you know, if anything, you know, if, if nothing else, not if anything else, if nothing else, this means you have to come back on because we lost 26 minutes. So uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this. Jeff, thank you so much. You were so much fun to talk to. Definitely one of my favorite guests. So down to earth for somebody who is on that kind of a level. You know what I mean? So down to earth. After these sponsors, Jeff Don, Oscar winning makeup artist. Stay right where you are. Don't go anywhere. Terminator 101 will be right back. Five, four, three, two, one. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Terminator 101. I'm Eddie Green, but on the other end of the line is someone that I'm really anxious to get talking to because this is an Oscar-winning guest. This has never happened before on Terminator 101. This is a first, and um, we're going to get talking about you know everything that has encompassed his career, but... I just got to introduce him. His name is Jeff Don, and he is an Academy Award-winning makeup artist. So without further ado, Jeff, how are you doing? Very good, Eddie. Thank you for having me on. No, th- no thank you, because um, this is actually something I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of. Is How did you find the podcast? Well, I, I heard that uh, you were excited about this because I am the first guest that has reached out to you. Instead yes. of you reaching out to guests and saying, please, please, please. I reached yeah. out to you and said, please, please, please. And this all came about um, Peter Kent, who you have interviewed before, who was um, uh, Arnold's photo double stand-in and oftentimes stuntman on many films for many years, is a friend of mine. And although I haven't seen Peter in years, he's up in Canada. I'm in Oregon and Hawaii all the time. 
um, I listened to the podcast and uh, really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to reach out because this is a, an audience. I love to speak publicly. I love to do interviews, all of that. And this is an audience that um, uh, is true to my heart. Uh, it's been a huge part of my career, three Terminator films and 19 films with Schwarzenegger. And um, I'm, uh, I'm just, I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, wow. Thank you. I mean, I have nothing compared to what you have. So, but that's just awesome <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that Peter talked about it. And he was, he was a lot of fun to talk to. So, um, and I, and I expect the exact same here. So, um, I like to start at the beginning, as I'm sure you heard with that interview. How did being a makeup artist come about? Like, where did where, where did that uh, come into your head and be like, okay, I want to go forward with with this as my career path? Great question, because it's really not something that the average person thinks about. You know, when I mention that I'm a makeup artist for film and television, the normal public looks at me like, what? How in the heck did you get into that? Well, I uh, lucked out. My grandfather was the head of the MGM makeup department for 15 years, uh, responsible for over 100 films under his, his uh, guidance, including The Wizard of Oz. And uh, so it started out that way. He was actually a cowboy that came out from Kentucky. He was an outstanding artist, and he became a silent film extra with his horse. They would pay him so many dollars a day. He'd come in, and he would, uh, he would you know, act in these silent films um, with his horse as a, uh, as, a, um, <clears throat> as a cowboy or whatever. And he could change his look. Oh, you want me to be a miner with a long beard tomorrow? I can be that person. And he would go home and he would make himself up that. You want me to be East Indian? I can be that person. And he would make himself up to be a character for whatever they needed. And back in those days, they didn't have makeup artists. Actors, for the most part, did their own makeup. This is back in, in the early turn of the century. So they, they didn't have makeup artists to make people look like that. Soon producers and directors would see him doing this and go, hey, can you help our, our actor over here, our actors, you know, help them with some of their character work. You're so good at it. So that's how my grandfather got into the business. And many years later, he became head of MGM makeup department. Um, that was generation one. Second generation was my father, Robert Dawn. He was a World War II fighter pilot. He came back from World War II and started apprenticing at MGM Studios for his father. And his father was quite the taskmaster. Actually, a quick story. My, my father was late one day and his father called him in and said, Bob, you're late. Go home. He's like, I'm just a few minutes late. No, no, no. You go home. And if you're late again, you're going to go home for the week. If you're late a third time, you're not coming back. <laughs> so that oh, kind of gives you the, not the way I uh, father my son and daughter, but that's the way my father was fathered. And uh, he was tough on him. So my father learned very quickly. He apprenticed uh, at MGM Studios, who was a very successful makeup artist for Alfred Hitchcock, for um, the Twilight, uh, for Twilight Zone, for, um, uh, he did the, uh, um, where no man has gone before the pilot, one of the two pilots for Star Trek. And um, it just many, many things won an Emmy for, for Mission Impossible. Lots of action and futuristic and science fiction films through the years. So, and he was the one who trained me. Then his brother, my uncle Wes became a makeup artist. He did it for about 35 years. And one day I was a builder. I was a carpenter and a builder and Love doing that. I still do a lot of that. And I was living with my father. I was uh, in my early 20s, 
up in Napa, California, and he was semi-retired. And I thought, you know, I kind of kind of interested in this makeup thing. I got a hold of his union makeup book and realized that I could make $110 a day. This is back in 1979. I could make $100 a day as a union makeup artist. Well, I was making $120 a week back then. So I thought, wow, I could do this. My whole family's been in this. I'm pretty good with art. I've helped my father in the lab with prosthetics and special effects makeup for years. I could do this. But my dad had always said, Jeff's going to get into something else. Jeff's not going to follow in the footsteps of film and television makeup. He's going to do something different. And what he was trying to do is keep me, keep me more of a family man because he knows that the film business takes you away from your family. It's hard to be a, a constant and good mate. It's hard to be hard in that way just because you're not there. You know, you can have quality time with your children and your family. You just can never have quantity time because you're you're working or you're you're gone while they're asleep or you're you're off on location. So he was kind of trying to save me, I think, from that. So I didn't think my dad was going to want to support me in this, and I was quite afraid to ever approach him on it. But I really wanted to be a makeup artist, so I went to my uncle and said, "Can you help me with this?" And he said, "Sure, sure, sure." But we can't tell your brother. You can't tell my dad. Okay, no problem. So six months go by. I've done quite a bit of training. I've realized I'm loving it so far. I'm not a makeup artist yet, but I've just been hanging out with other makeup artists and learning. And I approached my dad, knowing that I was going to do this with or without his support, kind of a little bit afraid of what he was going to say. And when I told him, he was like, fantastic. I'm so happy you decided to do this on your own and I will train you. So it really surprised me. And he, I had his unconditional support then. He trained me in the garage. I learned to be a makeup artist. I thought I'd become a union makeup artist very quickly, which is better pay and better conditions and all that because of the family. It took me five years. I did lots of non-union films, including a little one called Terminator, which yes. didn't exactly hurt my career. And um, nor anyone else's that worked on the film, let's, let's uh, mention. So um, I started doing films and I, all I wanted to ever do is beat the department head. The department head is the one who's responsible for the entire department, for the look, for the crew, for the, the budget, for the meetings, keeping the, the cast happy, keeping production happy. You know, you're the one with the responsibilities and you have a little bit more money out of it and a lot more say in, in what's going to end up on screen. And that's all I ever wanted to do. I wanted to do it for films because back when I started, TV wasn't such a big deal. It was kind of the redheaded stepchild of the uh, entertainment industry. TV was. Now it's a whole different thing. You know, you have Academy Award winning uh, actors lining up to do television programs and it's it's so much better now. But Back then it was film. So to be that top rung of the film makeup business is what I really strived for. So I started department heading little non-union things, um, free projects that I would just do for free for experience. And I never looked at working for other people. And consequently I haven't. I've been department heading now for almost 40 years. And um, I've been very, very happy doing that. So that's kind of how I got into it. My son now is 30 years old. He's in the film business. He's not a, uh, a makeup artist, but um, he's a, he's a producer and an and AD and assistant director. Um, and he, so he's a fourth generation in our, in our family. And what about, uh, what about your daughter? Is she uh, involved in the industry at all? She is not. She's very smart and very artistic, but she's gone into other areas uh, having to do with business, international business up in 
up in Portland, Oregon. And okay. I'm very proud of her because she's, well, in a way, and kind of thinking back to what my dad was worried about, I was worried about that with my kids. You know, I, I know how, like I tell people when you have to be careful when you're really passionate about film and television products, projects, and you have a lot of responsibility for them because those projects become your mistress in a way of you're going to take away your time, your passion, your energy, your love, your enthusiasm, all the things that you want to put into your mate, be it your girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, you're going to take those things away from them like you were having an affair because it takes so much energy and so much of, of who you are to not only survive a big project, but to thrive during it. And anyone in the business will know exactly what I'm talking about because it's, you know, it's really hard to have, to be a great father there the whole time when you're needed, a great husband, friend to all your friends. You know, you do a project and you kind of uh, just step off the planet for a few months. And then you come back and you apologize to everybody and say, hey, so sorry, I haven't been around. Let's get together. Let's have dinner. Let's do this. Let's do that. And it's tough. It's tough on a family. It's what I'm used to. And it's it's kind of a, it's it's addictive. You know, it's the the, the, the gypsy life on the road. And it's very addictive because you travel a lot, you make good money, you, you know, you live multiple lifetimes. By the time I was 30 years old, with the countries that I traveled in and that been worked in and the things that I'd seen, the things that I'd done, I, it felt like I'd lived multiple lifetimes. You know, people love to travel in their life. And I had the opportunity to live and work in many countries by the time I was 30. So it's very addictive that way. People, you know, will kill me in a heartbeat to get my job. And um, just because they're hard to get, they're hard to hold on to. And, um, you know, once you get them, you don't want to let go of them. So would you say that like in today's 2019 era, like is it harder to get into the business than it was when you started or vice versa? It's much harder now. It's, it's a whole different playing field right now. Yes, we have more jobs now because there are so many uh, um, networks and there's so many, you know, you just, you know what I'm talking about. You just turn on Netflix non-existent a few years ago and there are dozens of Netflix projects that are made just for Netflix. And so many other companies have that. You just don't have uh, Universal Studios and Warner Brothers and Paramount and ABC, NBC, CBS anymore. You have a hundred different giant film and television manufacturing companies. So there's a lot of makeup jobs out there right now. Um, to be, to have the career I have would be very difficult, Be partly because of the um, the visual effects that are such a big part of it now that we have been dovetailing together with visual effects and practical effects for many years now. And um, it's to the point now where it's starting to become even more and more so. But makeup, as, as, as we know it, will continue for as long as I can imagine. So you have that. It's extremely competitive. You have many different schools out there. And um, I'm involved with helping people as much as I can. I have people call me almost every day or get in touch with me through Facebook or whatever. And I try to help enthusiastic makeup artists or people wanting to get in the business with something as simple as, okay, pick up a makeup artist magazine, read through it, find out what schools are there, what, what uh, shows are coming up. Just start to immerse yourself into that world and then see if that's what you want. You know, all the way to people that have been in the business for 30 years that call me, 
for whatever reason. And I like to give them advice too. So I, I love to try to give back like I'm doing right now. So I've been able to observe over the years, the easier parts of getting the business and the more difficult parts. And of course, competition is huge. You know, for every, let's say hundred makeup artists that graduate out of these makeup schools, you might have two or three of them making a good living in a few years. You know, that's, that's a terrible proportion difference, but there are two or three people there. Every person that comes to me says, well, I'm artistic, but I'm not crazy artistic. And I go, well, that's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's so much more having to do with your passion, your enthusiasm, your drive. Are you right for the film and television business? You know, you can, you can do a damn good job with makeup by kind of painting by the numbers, kind of going with it, doing it in a technical manner, not a crazy artistic. We have such crazy artistic people in the makeup business that people like myself look at them and go, you, you got to be kidding me. You know, I could, I could never do that. I can do really nice work. And I'm very proud of that, but I don't have that crazy, just, you know, off the register talent like some people do. Those aren't necessarily the people that are going to rise to the top. You've got to have the right mindset, the right drive. I've always been a people person. I've always been very good at selling ideas, very good at, uh, at, at, at building enthusiasm. And it's kind of an infectious enthusiasm over an idea that I can kind of get through and hopefully see it all the way to the screen. Um, and I'm more of a businessman. I very much, makeup artists generally aren't business-minded people. We're artists, but I've always been very business-like too. I run my department like a business. I look at the business as a business. It's a film and television business, and I have to remind people of that. And it works very well when I need something from the people that have the money, like the producers and the production managers. They think business, business, business. So I can go and approach them and say, okay, this is what I need for this episode or this day or for this film. And this is why I need it. And this is how it's going to help you and save you. And if you talk business speak to the people with the money, it's amazing how often you get what you need. So I've approached it more like a business. Most makeup artists don't because they're more focused into the, into the artistic aspect of it. And that works great for them. But when I lecture on department heading, when I talk about getting jobs in the business, when I talk about what to do next to, to, to further your career, I really push the whole business, business, business. Think the way the people that you want something from think. If you're going to go to a production manager and say, I need 10 people for tomorrow, you have to be ready with the math to talk their language to get them to say yes. So that's the way I approach the business. And it's been very, very helpful for me. And I try to just impart that wisdom to other, other makeup artists. Wow. Wow. I mean, what, what, what's really interesting about something that you said um, is, you know, Terminator is, uh, you know, obviously I've devoted so much of my, my time and attention to it because of how much I adore it. And, you mentioned how uh, makeup is really kind of starting to blend and not even starting has been, but is continuing to blend with visual effects. And really I'm someone who is so adamant about no matter what you do, I will take practical over visual any day. And, yeah. but it's so strange. Like when you just mentioned that I started thinking of, wow, like, that's how, like, that's how I prefer it, practical over visual. But yet, my favorite filmmaker 
is James Cameron, who has been yep. literally at the forefront of visual effects and kind of pushing it forward. So right. it's it, it's this really weird uh, balance of um, really kind of trying to figure out what's the best way to approach it. And, um, you know, something that, you know, broke my heart and I know broke a lot of people's hearts is uh, didn't um, Rick Baker retire because he felt that uh, visual effects were basically the like the new frontier and that makeup had kind of fallen to the background a little bit? Well, the visual effects has been a new frontier for, for decades, you know, and it's to the point where, and, and I don't, I can't speak for Rick because I don't know that as a fact. Rick was getting older, possibly, you know, looking to retire anyways. So I don't know if that's a fact. It could very well be. Um, visual effects are here to stay. And we've all become so sophisticated at looking at visual effects. I just watched Terminator 1 this morning. I hadn't seen it in years. And God, I love that film. I just forgot what a cool, cool film that is. You know, yes. very, oh. very proud of it. And um, of course, the visual effects, of course, the, uh, the practical effects in there are very, very dated. But you, you accept it. You know, you accept it. In, and it's just a wonderful thing to... Uh, to see those and to see those working um, visual effects. I watch visual effects over the years become something that would start off. Let's say we're in a production meeting for a film. We're a few weeks out from starting a film and you have all the department heads. You might have 40 people in a, in a room having the meeting of the whole script. And we would get to a point where it could be practical or it could be visual effect. And they'd say, well, okay, if it's practical, you know, it's going to cost us $100,000, all right? This is just as an example. Um, what's it going to take on the set? Well, if everything works, it's going to be, you know, it's going to take a, a, a few hours to get it just right. Okay. All right. Now, if we do it with visual effects, what's going to cost? Well, it's going to cost $400,000. Okay. What will it take on the set? Virtually nothing. Nothing. A pass with you know, a little shiny ball or, a, a, you know, a, a green screen or whatever. You're not going to lose any production time. And production time is what scares the hell out of producers and studios because it gets so expensive. So I've watched people say, no, we can do that in post. We can do that in visual effect because they're afraid of not knowing how long it could slow down production on the day. Because productions, whether you're doing two pages a day on a film or eight or nine pages a day on a TV show, Time is everything. And the thought of it taking more than what you feel it should and not knowing how long it's going to take for sure, because a lot of these, these special effects, you don't know. Okay, we're going to have the head, you know, get torn off and blah, blah, blah. Well, what's the reset time? Reset's 45 minutes. Okay. Um, so if we don't get it right in the first three takes, you know, we're halfway through our day by the time we shoot it and reset it, it scares people. So that's part of it. Um, James Cameron, of course, has been using visual effects because of things that really can't be done practically. If he can do it practically, he's going to do it. And visual effects wise, he's always been the one that comes up with these ideas that nobody else has thought of. And he goes to visual effects houses and says, can you do that? And they're like, I don't know. Nobody's ever done that before. So, you know, you're not going to be able to do a, a water snake in, in uh, you know, uh, um, the abyss or so many of these other effects that aren't 100% computer generated. So 
I think he's a great example of someone who still holds on to practical effects when it's practical and when it's financially feasible and where it will look just as good or better. So, but yeah, it is, it is changing. It is changing um, and, and we will see more and more visual effects, less and less practical effects as time goes on, but it actually hasn't happened as fast as I thought it would. A couple of decades ago, we were talking about this happening very quickly. And it's still, you still have big makeup effect shops out there. You know, the AIs yeah. and the K&Bs and, and you still have the big makeup effect shops out there making big practical monsters, making big pieces of a even bigger digital monster. Okay, we need a claw or we need a, a mouth or a head or something like that. And they're still making these big practical pieces as well as of course the prosthetics. And the, the full prosthetics on people's faces is still very, very common. We're doing it all the time on multiple shows. Yeah, I mean, it is it is fascinating when you start to think of like, just how like even a film will uh, present something like the future. So how you said that decades ago, you were thinking of uh, makeup kind of going to the background a lot quicker than it actually mm -hmm. did. I mean, you look at something like The Terminator. I mean, we're literally 10 years away. We're just a decade away from 2029, which is when, I know. you know what I mean? It's just right. like, but. And, and I mean, it, it, it's really hard to be like, okay, in 10 years, time travel is going to exist and, and these sophisticated robots are going to exist. So, you know, it's sort of like film, how it presents it as something that happens much quicker than it actually does. Um, right. But yeah, that is really, really interesting. And I'm so, oh man, like I have so many things I want to ask you. So I want to start <laughs> at... Um, the Terminator, because I mean, what really whatever came before, I think set you up for success with the Terminator because you just said it, you watched it today and in who knows how many years and mm -hmm. that film holds up. I showed it to a friend about a week ago and they had never seen it before. And um, that's what they said. They said, wow, like that, that, that is a movie that is literally in like in a time capsule, all of its own of just stuff you just don't see anymore. And I, like, I wanted to know, like, what was, what was your um, kind of duties on, on that first film? Like, what was the extent of working with Stan Winston? Because everybody knows the name Stan Winston and right. everybody associates that, or at least I do, maybe not so much with makeup, but I really, when I think of Stan Winston, I think of like the animatronics and the puppets and, and, and for lack of a better term, that kind of stuff. What was the extent of your um, uh, duties on that film and, and how did you collaborate with Stan? Well, I was contacted by a producer that I knew nothing of at the time named Gail Anhurt. And she said, Jeff, um, we have a picture called The Terminator, and uh, we'd like to interview you for it, because I was a young, upcoming, non-union action department head. That's what I had touted myself as. I had very few years' experience at it, but that's what came in the room first when I came in the room. You know, if you're looking for an action department head for makeup that does prosthetics, can oversee everything, you're looking at it. So, but I didn't have credits for the most part at that point. So I went out and I picked up what was called drama log at the time. It was a, an industry um, a, a weekly magazine that showed different projects coming up and all that for the people in the industry in LA. 
And I saw that it was starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now you have to understand that from the time I was about 18 years old until I was in my mid twenties, I was hugely into bodybuilding. I was going to the gym. I was this tall, skinny kid that was a runner in school and I wanted to get bigger. And I started lifting weights and feeling really good about it. And of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a god to people like that. I'd watched Pumping Iron many, many times. I'd read his book several times, Education of a Bodybuilder. I had posters up of him. There's never been somebody that I idolized like him. And suddenly, and I was thinking to myself, in knowing that Arnold was getting into the business and I was in the business, maybe someday I'll bump into him at a studio lot or something. And here I had the opportunity to work on a film with, you know, my idol. So um, I went in and I met with James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd up at Gail Ann Hurd's house, which they were doing pre-production work up there. And it was on Mulholland Drive, overlooking the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. And I met with the two of them. And of course, James Cameron had he'd done Piranha 2 at the time, and he was a production designer. You know, he was, nobody knew him. What, and, and I hadn't read the script yet. So they liked me and they said, okay, you just need to be signed off by Stan Winston. Stan Winston is doing all of our makeup effects and our Terminator effects. And he wants to have final say on whoever's going to be the makeup department head. He said, no problem. So I go into Stan's office and I meet Stan. Um, Stan, of course, knew my father and my whole family lineage. I had never met him before. So I'm sure that that got my foot in the door a little bit just because of the family. Had a really good conversation with Stan. And Stan said, great, welcome to the show. You know, And um, at that point, nothing was said about what I was or was not going to do having to do with the Terminator effects. A story that I've told many times before, he said to me, you know, we're having a test on Arnold next week. We'd like you to come. Okay, great. So I'm all nervous. I come there expecting to do nothing. You know, I'm going to observe this. This is, we had uh, John Rosengrand and Shane uh, Mayhand at uh, Stan's shop, who, had, who are now owners of Legacy Effects, Stan's old shop. So they've been there forever from the original Terminators, and they've done all the Terminators, both those guys. They were there, and suddenly Arnold walks in and says, hey, everybody, how's it going? You guys look fantastic. <laughs> And, you know, with a few other expletives that uh, were very Arnold-like, and we're all laughing. And I meet him, and he sits down in the chair. And, you know, I'm just besides myself with excitement trying to contain it because this is a huge moment in my life, not only meeting my idol, but also to be chosen by Stan Winston to do a movie that I didn't I had no idea. You know, this was a non-union, little over $6 million film. It was just another one of the small non-union films are being done in LA that year. And I'd read the script by then. I thought it was super cool. And um, he sits down and there are some prosthetics, some foam latex, which is old school prosthetics that we used to use and don't use them so much anymore on the table with some various application glues and colors and things. And he sits down and nobody's working on him. And we're supposed to do these these eyebrow covers to test when he's run through the fire and he burns his eyebrows off. I wasn't prepared for this, but nobody's doing anything. I thought, okay, <laughs> now or never. And I grabbed one of the pieces and I just started laying it on and gluing it and painting it. And I did it. I did it on just one side. And that's all they wanted to see. They just wanted to see the one side. And it turned out really good. 
And later on, Stan called me in and said, hey, I saw what went down in there. That, that looked really good, Jeff. He said, I wasn't sure if, you know, what, if you were going to have anything to do with the prosthetics on this, but I'd like you to be part of the team. Well, it ended up, I ended up being part of the team or being the sole applicator on everything on that show. Because it was non-union, it was small. We had days where it was just me, days where it was myself plus a couple of stands people, and days where there would be like eight makeup artists, like the, the future uh, catacombs where all the people were scarred and dirty and bloody. But for the most part, it was a very non-union, small project that only had me or myself plus one or two. So all of the prosthetics in it, I had something to do with. And um, to the point where even today, I looked at the... Uh, that when he gets in the, the truck and says, get out, um, there was a blood trickle that goes right down the front of his face. And I always, for some, some artistic reason, regretted doing that one trickle right there. You know, nobody knows, nobody cares. It's such an iconic look. But at the time, it's like, okay, why did I put that trickle right there? <laughs> you know, But um, it was a lot of fun. And um, so Stan was very happy with what I did. I was extremely happy to be part of it. Arnold and I clicked very well. And I was off and running. And, you know, I did a few other pictures with uh, James Cameron and, of course, uh, 18 other pictures with Arnold. So until he became governor. So it wasn't, wasn't a bad run. Absolutely not. And, and what's so cool about that scene that you mentioned is, is it kind of balances going back and forth with the cutting of the practical appliances that you had done and yeah. the uh the is it when when i say animatronic is that the actual correct term or yeah, is it better used as yeah, puppet? It, 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 both of them, a puppeted head is puppeted by animatronics so okay. you're sitting there you know and it's a combination old school is a bunch of puppeteers with a couple of of of, of, of like uh, um steering wheels or levers in their hands where you can like, okay, you're going to be part of the right hand. So you're going to, this lever is going to move the wrist this way. And that lever is going to move the wrist that way. Okay. This puppeteer is going to be part of the right hand. And you're going to use, you're going to operate the five fingers. This puppeteer, I mean, there've been times for Total Recall and other films where I've seen a room full of puppeteers. We're talking like 15 puppeteers laid out on the ground with little apple boxes for chairs under them and little, little, uh, controlling devices in their hand and then you have a couple other people with radio controls in their hands and they're radio controlling the servos that operate or maybe eyelids or eye movement or head turning so you use you animatronically control a puppet and they still do that to a certain degree um, a real simple thing that I thought was so brilliant when it comes to low-tech animatronics when Arnold puts his arm down on the table and he's going to do the surgery. There's a shotgun blast and his he cuts it open and he's actuating the little rams in there as his fingers are moving. Well, what they did is they had a hole cut in the table and we had a puppeteer with a very small hand slide their hand up in through that hole and into what was a glove on that prosthetic. So as you're looking at a full prosthetic from the shoulder all the way to the fingertips, the hand portion of it actually has a human's hand inside of it that's underneath the table. So, and they're calling it out. Okay. We're going to move the, uh, you know, the, the vice grips with a rod on it. One, two, three. 
And that person would move that finger. One, two, three, they'd move that finger. And it worked so well, you know, and to see that whole contraption, it was so low tech, but it worked so well that, uh, cause it gave that hand life. Because when you try to animatronically control puppets, a lot of times they're very jerky. You know, we're such experts on human movement that if you only have a few accesses of movement and they're all mechanical, it, it doesn't look real oftentimes. You know, when, when somebody is blinking, it's just open, closed, open, closed. Their head is turning left, right, left, right. There can be a jerkiness to it. There can be a non-fluid thing about it that you may not even be able to explain. You just, the eye is such, so precise at knowing human movement and realism that it just says, I don't buy it. So having that organic hand in there really worked well. And I thought that was observing because I watched or listened to your, um, your effects Porsche uh, uh, podcast on the effects of 2000 or 1984. And I mean, I agreed with you with all of that, you know, the fact that, that it still holds up, but it does take you out of the moment. And it's so difficult, even to today standards to cut directly from real to fake, real to fake. And that's what that whole sequence did, especially when he was cutting his eye out in the mirror. The head yes. was made out of, you know, the head was made out of foam latex. And that's the way we did everything back then. Foam latex is non-translucent whatsoever. It looks like sofa cushion, you know, when you first see it. And you have to paint it with multiple colors and different dots and, and textures to try to give it some three-dimensional depth. Nowadays, we have silicones and urethanes and gelatins that are somewhat translucent. And they move so beautifully so we can we can make something look 100% like skin, even when you're looking at it from a foot away. But back then it was foam latex. And because we were cutting back and forth, back and forth, it's so hard to not be taken out of that moment of, ah, that's a puppet head. Oh, that looks like the real, oh, we're back to the puppet head. It was done so well, but you know, the, our brains and our eyes are, like I said, you, you have hundreds of little points that tell you it's real. You may not even be able to explain it. Okay, why doesn't that look real? Well, it looks kind of wooden. Okay, it looks kind of stiff. Why does it look stiff? It's moving just the way Arnold's moving. It looks just like Arnold. Well, the eyes look a little different. Okay, all right, that's, there's that. What else? I don't know. It just doesn't look real. It's hard for people to pinpoint because our eye, and this is what the visual effects world has been working on for years, trying to make photorealistic characters on film because you have so many factors, the way the hair flows, the way the translucency, translucency of the skin. And this is when everything is right. You've got the right color, you've got the right hair, you've got the right eyeballs, you've got the right continuity on it. Everything is 100% what the actor looks like. Why does it still look like a puppet? You know, That's very difficult to do even to today's standards. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, with, with, with that particular episode, I just wanted to really stress the fact that even if it does take you out of the moment, mm -hmm. I will I will take that any day over a CGI shark for sure. like for example. Oh, no, you know, no kidding! Yes, for yeah, you know course. for something that I can just be like, wow, that sure. is one hundred. I I I look at that scene and I go, yeah, sure, it's fake, but yeah. I, I so appreciate the time, the labor, the love. You can just see it in every frame of just knowing like the, like, like just the talent that was involved in even making something like that, because I couldn't yeah. fathom making something like that. Mm -hmm. 
you know? And I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating. And I didn't know that when he's operating on his arm, that that's a, that that's a, I thought it was all 100% um, uh, animatronic. Yeah. And, and, and you, even knowing what I just told you, you'd look at it and go, Hmm. Okay. Because you can't see the person underneath. You can't see the hole in the, in that. It's just, it was so cool when they brought it in, when Stan's voice brought it in, it had this hole on the back side of the hand. And when you lay it down there, it's kind of like a, an empty glove flop. And then this puppeteer just slides her hand up. There was a little, little woman and uh, just goes by the call out. Okay. Index finger, one, two, three, index finger, one, two, three, you know, <laughs> it was just so cool to watch. But yeah, that, wow. that scene, you know, it, it takes you out of it a little bit here and there, but you're so horrified and, and spell found by the fact that he's digging, he's, you know, sharp or, or uh, uh, exacto blades, knives, and eyes don't go well together. No. You know, <laughs> you just, you just, you've been taught since a kid, don't use an exacto on your eyeball. And so you're just horrified by that. And he's doing it with no pain and just like, what the heck? You know, I got something in my eye. I'm going to take it out. And uh, so it all works. And then the scenes at the end when he's all torn up and it's a puppet head there, it's so quickly cut. And it's, it's interesting because we, of course, you use those because you want to be able to see in and see the fact that there are voids that there are, because of course we're putting fake metals and plastics and, and, and rubbers and all these things on top of Arnold's face. That's all we can do with practical effects. You can give the illusion that it's dug in a little bit, which we did on all the other Terminator films. But once you start to see some depth, you've got to have it visual effect. And nowadays we just paint the face green and we do it you know, with, with green screen. But back then it was a puppet head that you could see inside of his cheek. Yes. And that's why I say that that holds up more just because more of the face is taken off and, yeah. and, and, and you're able to actually buy into it. Cut. Yeah. It's quickly cut. His head is turning left to right. He's looking, you know, and it's it, it, the, the whole scene is so frenetic at that point that it uh, you don't have a chance to study anything. Now, did you have did you have any say on um, the endoskeleton itself on how that came out, or was that really no, just James that, Cameron? That was, yeah, that was James Cameron and uh, and Stan Winston, and. Um, um, uh, Stan had his shop building it for months ahead of time. Because you can imagine the hundreds of parts that go into that to make it. And then once you've made it, okay, we have to have it move certain ways. How are we going to do it? Well, we'll do the torso portion and we'll have one of the crew members wear the torso on top of him like a backpack. Just imagine, you've probably seen the pictures where you've yes. got the, the puppeteer and he's, he's holding onto two rods that are on, attached to the arms. And he has the, the endoskeleton torso and head up on top. You have puppeteers operating with um, with servos and with uh, radio control for the head. And then you have the whole walk with the puppeteer where he's moving the right arm forward like he's stepping. He's moving the left arm forward like he's stepping. That took forever to get that just right. And then there were so many other body parts that you know were used and dragged around and moved and crushed and thrown and blown up. Oh, a quick story that uh, just watching this reminded me when Kyle takes the pipe bomb and sticks it into the, into the endoskeleton and it blows up, he's killed. Um, Sarah then has a piece of shrapnel in her leg. Well, 
this kind of came down at the last minute and Jim said, yeah, just, you know, let's put a prosthetic there and, um, and then we'll just glue a piece of, uh, of, of shrapnel onto it. No problem. Well, I had used super glue many times to glue because it was this piece of shrapnel was made out of plastic and it was quite light, but still it stuck out a ways and I had to glue it with something fairly durable. I had the prosthetic on her leg and I had used super glue many times to do this kind of thing with no problems. Well, this particular time, keep in mind, I was fairly new in the business. I didn't have almost 40 years of experience behind me. I glued it in there and Linda goes, ah, this is starting to burn. God, that's, it'll probably go away. <laughs> no, Jeff, it's really starting to burn. So we took it off and it had burned her a bit. Um, I had a party at my house about six months later and the, the cast and crew and a bunch of friends showed up there and Linda showed up. She said, Jeff, I want to show you something. She pulled her dress up and there was a scar there. I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> Linda, oh. I'm so sorry. Um, years later when I worked with her on uh, uh, T2, it was gone by then. Cause the first thing I looked at is your scar still there. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, these are the things you got to be careful because makeup. I mean, my grandfather was the one who sent buddy Epson the original Tin Woodsman on um, on the uh, Wizard of Oz to the hospital because, you know, you experiment with different products. Hey, we need this person to look silver. What do we use? Hey, this aluminum dust looks really good. Look what happens when you rub it on the skin. It looks like aluminum. That's great. Well, then somebody breathes it in like Buddy Epson did and it becomes almost fatal. You go to the hospital and you realize, okay, they can't do that. <laughs> you know, We're still doing that with actors. You know, we have products that we, we do material safety data sheets on them. We experiment with them. We test with them constantly. But, you know, we're still coming close to killing actors and maiming them oftentimes because we're gluing things on them. Um, so it's, it's something you have to be very careful of because it's, uh, you don't want to shut a project down. You know? Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to be the reason that they have to, uh, you know, like you said, shut it down. So I like what's really cool about that scene is because um, oh, man, like this is so cool just talking about this stuff. Um, it, it it almost looks like it's just like a piece of like not. It doesn't look like a piece of anything. It it, it looks like she has a hole in her in her pants, right. and there's like a blood stain. And then it almost looks like the way I envisioned that it worked. She had the metal piece kind of hidden in her hand, and she just pretends like she pulls it out. Yeah, you just, as, as I look at it, she grabs it and there's a little sound effects, kind of like slurp, slurp, grind, you know, as she's going, oh, and she pulls it out. And as she as it comes out, then it's in her hand with a protrusion sticking out like it just came from inside her leg. You know, it's just a huh. cheat. Of it. You know, we didn't need to do a prosthetic leg where you see the actual, you know, yeah. three inches of metal sliding out of a hole. And then she throws it near ding, 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 ding. So you realize, oh, that, you know one ounce piece of foam covered in fake metal. It was actually uh, probably a half pound piece of metal. Yeah. Wow. Why do you think, because I, I, I do know by 1984, um, the Oscar was already in, um, in the, uh, in the show, in the Oscar show, like for, for, for best I makeup. Think, I think Oscar came out first and I'm not sure of this. I think it came out in 89. It was Rick Baker that won it the first time for American Werewolf in London. So yeah, didn't that movie come out in like '82 or maybe? And I maybe you know, just, <laughs> I can tell you stories, and I can only uh, <laughs> guarantee a certain level of accuracy here. Um, <laughs> I don't remember. I don't think that that it wasn't on the radar. 
for some reason to, to become best makeup, which one would think it would because it was a big makeup film. So I, I that's don't what know. I was going to yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Your, your viewers are probably going to Google and saying, okay, when did the Academy Awards start? I thought it started in 88 or 89. For some reason, I'm thinking because I, to me, uh, just off the top of my head, and I'm actually ashamed I don't know this, I, American Werewolf in London feels older than Terminator. It, it does um, to me too, but I, it's so many years ago, it all seems like a, a, a long time ago. <laughs> you know? But let's just hypothetically say, if we are correct, that, that, that the Oscar was already um, available, it's, why do you think that the Terminator, if that, if that is the case, why do you think it wasn't up for, because I will, man, I, I, I'm just uh, like in awe, like, how can you overlook something that well? I will, once we're done with this, I'm going to, of course, look it up, um, as you probably will, on, find (laughs) out, A, was there an Academy Award that year, and B, who won it, you know, maybe it was something so extraordinary that, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know, maybe it was, uh, um, a quest for fire or something. I don't know. You know, it might have been something just so monstrously makeup, makeup, makeup that it was no question to give it to them. But for some reason, I don't, it's not on my radar. I didn't even think about the Academy Awards until I was nominated in for Terminator Two. You know, it was off my radar completely of how to get nominated for them and all that. And suddenly, I was nominated with Stan Winston and I've learned a lot about it since then. I've been an Academy member now for almost 30 years and uh, I'm very involved with the voting. I've gone to many, many meetings. I've gone to several Academy award presentations. So, you know, I know a lot about it now, but back then I knew nothing of it until they said, Hey, by the way, I was prepping a show called cliffhanger that we shot in Italy and I was just about to leave. And I heard uh, that one of the production producers on it called and said hey congratulations I go, what are you talking about you're nominated for an academy award i went what <laughs> <laughs> so yeah like that had to be such a like just for everybody that i've talked to that 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 has gone on that journey of going from um t1 to t2 mm-hmm. is it, it, it feels like going from high school to college, like, like this, th- th- this totally different world. And yeah. it, I mean, obviously we know why, because of the success that, um, you know, Cameron had achieved up until that point, he, yeah. he, he, he had finally gotten, you know, um, uh, director's cut over his films and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you could largely attribute that to aliens and, Terminator two comes around and do you know, like, were you 100% on board? Like you knew in the back of your head, if there's a sequel, I'm going to be involved in it. Yeah, very much. I had, I had done several films with Arnold by that point. So I knew that it was out there and they were dealing with rights. You had Hemdale as the original and Orion pictures um, as original owners of it. Um, The rights of Terminator, of course, have jumped all over the place over the years and I believe at one point it went then to Mario Casar and Andy Vanya, who were owners and head of Coralco Pictures. And this was an independent film company that did the Rambo pictures. They did huge pictures, but they did them independently. They weren't the Warner Brothers or Universals. They had deep pockets and they were doing things independently. And um, then James Cameron came aboard and, and it just it was really turned out to be quite a, a monstrous project. So what was your, yeah, like what was your, 
clearly, I mean, this is a big step up in terms of um, production value. So was it sort of like the way that everyone has described it to me? Like you're, you're, you're given the keys to the kingdom and now you can literally um, create whatever yeah. you want to create. It had, it had a big budget so we could do whatever was necessary to, as long as it can show up on camera, you put it on screen and it makes it, it, it you know, benefits the movie. Let's do it. You know, Arnold had, I don't know how many jackets. They had all of these leather jackets lined up, like 30 of them. And they were destroying them, of course, at different levels. Okay, this one is, you know, have bullet holes in it. This one is shredded. This one, we're just going to take a belt sander to. And these jackets were hundreds, if not thousands of dollars each, by made by Bates Jackets Company, the motorcycle jacket company. And these are all hero jackets that were going to be worn by Arnold and his doubles throughout the film. And there was... There might have been 30 of them. Like, wow. <laughs> you know? And it just goes on and on. I mean, it's, when you work with a James Cam on a James Cameron project, anything after Terminator 1, it's beyond big. You know, when you're on True Lies and you're shutting down whole highways in, in, uh, um, uh, in Florida so that you can land your borrowed Harrier jets on a piece of asphalt that you've put in there because normal asphalt will be melted by Harrier jets as they land Harrier jets being the vertical takeoff and land jets. Their, 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 their down blast is so hot. Anything you land on, it's not concrete or special treated asphalt just burns up. So we had to re asphalt a giant parking lot just for these jets to land. I mean, the, the amount of work that goes into all of these things that James Cameron plans for is crazy. Oh, I know. Oh, it's so like just awe-inspiring and, and, and knowing that your Oscar came from Terminator 2, when you look back on, like, when was the last time you watched Terminator 2? Uh, probably a few years ago. Okay. You know, there's what so is... many scenes that pop up on the internet all the time. I'm like, oh, okay, this is, we'll watch this scene now. Oh, that's really cool. I got to watch the movie again. You know, but I, you get bits and pieces of scenes that are, because I have different sites that I follow effect sites and Terminator sites and Arnold sites and all these things. And, and uh, they're throwing those scenes up all the time. Yeah. Um, what is like the scene that in that particular uh, uh, picture really is like your proudest moment and, and stands out to you? Because I think if you had to pinpoint and you probably can't, but if you had to pinpoint the reason why you and Stan won the best makeup is I would say the end scene when yep. Arnold is literally at the point where he goes, I need a vacation. Yep. And you, you have those immense close-ups that you didn't do in Terminator one because yep. the effects had progressed so well to where you were looking at 100% non-visual effects. It was literally just your work on Arnold's face. And it looks like I'm looking into his, into his face. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it works very well for that. When we did Terminator 3, of course, we on one side of his face, he had some battle damage. And on the other side, it was all painted green because it was a void. There was skull there and all the skin was missing in the ear and everything. So we had to do that on Terminator 3. But Terminator 2, it was still that, that you know, chunks of skin missing here and there. And it worked very well. We were also, you know, when you're in the... Um, in the, the metal factory there. And it's all lit with this amber flickering light. That's very friendly to makeup effects. So you have the, you know, if you took him out in the daylight, 
and you just stared at him in a close-up, you'd go, wait a minute, there's makeup and there's makeup and there's makeup. But with all the shine and the, and the, the KY on him and all of that, you know, all the movies when he is a Terminator, we, I had him shined up a little bit with KY and just to give it kind of a, a plasticky skin look. And um, by the time he gets to that point, it's bloody and torn up skin and shiny. So it, it does, it holds up quite well. And uh, yeah, you're right. I'm sure that's where the Academy members would look at it and go, okay, that's, that's cool makeup. I buy it. I like it. I'm going to vote for that guy. Yeah. Oh, it's so amazing. But is that, is that something that stands out to you or, or something else prior to that? Like, were you involved with any of the, the blowing up of the T-1000 like head? No, that was all of those effects were just brilliantly, beautifully made things that came out of Stan's shop. And I was constantly over at Stan's shop, getting things and talking with him and going through the details of, of different looks and such. Because on Terminator 2, I was also department head, and, and uh, myself and uh, Steve Laporte, another uh, Academy Award winning makeup artist, we were doing all the application on Arnold for all of those looks. And occasionally, if we had a, a massive amount of work to be done, like hands and things like that, we'd bring in one more person. Um, but uh, I wasn't involved with those at all. They would come ready, and they would, of course, they were all very animatronic and, and with puppeteers and movement and all of that. And they just looked fantastic. And Stan had, it was so cool. Nowadays, they would never do this. But Stan had these little flowers of silver bullet hits that would appear. Like when we first see the Terminators get together in the hallway and Arnold fires several shots at Robert Patrick and you see these, uh, these silver flowers go punk, punk, punk all across him. Those are practical. They're little spring-loaded bunches that look like uh, cloth. And then when you hit a little servo, it goes bink and pops open and turns into a silver open bullet hole like the, the, the mercury is oozing out. And then visually they would disappear for when he heals again. But the actual you know, appearance of them were, was done practically. Yeah. Oh, man, that is so cool. I, you know, <laughs> Stan, Stan really was putting aside the fact that, you know, you knew Stan and you were, I, I, I assume, really, really close friends. Um, someone, because we do know, and this is something that I feel like the public forgets a lot about. You have that person that's at like the, 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 like the front of the picture, which would be Stan Winston. He would right. be the one who, in the credits, it's makeup effects by Stan Winston. Yes. But it's, it, 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 it's something that kind of irritates me because clearly it's, it's such a giant group effort. And it's so like, why does just one person get all the credit for 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 that thing why did it not say makeup effects by stan winston comma jeff don comma you know what i mean well that's contracted for one um and it's you know stan uh, in any of his interviews or anytime he would speak publicly as i have done thank the people that have been so helpful you know his crew his core crew because stan might have had 50 60 people working on that but he's going to thank his core three or four people that are his you know his commanders and so to speak, in the field, as I do. And something I want to do right now before I forget is I want to just make sure your audience knows how much I respect and appreciate what Stan did for me. All right, Stan took this young kid, 
that was hungry to learn and hungry to prove himself. And he gave him a shot. And I have a lot to owe Stan Winston. I've got an Academy Award that has a big part of him on it. I have a career. I've made a lot of money, traveled a lot of locations, worked with a lot of cool people. And it really all started from my jump start that Stan Winston and James Cameron gave me. And then Arnold, of course, you know, Arnold and I got along well. He, he appreciated Arnold's a very efficient guy. He's a very happy, positive guy. He likes happy, positive people around him. There's a little boy in Arnold and he likes it that way, but he's also very efficient and very much a business person. And Arnold and I got along really well because he used to say there's kill, there's overkill and there's Jeff kill because I would just prepare the hell out of things so that they were as successful so I could guarantee success. And I would like that, you know, and we would possibly still be working together if he didn't go into, uh, um, into politics. And um, now that he's out, I thought about saying, Hey Arnold, but it's, I did it for almost 20 years. You know, it's a bucket list thing that I've crossed off. I'm very happy that I have in my past. And I just don't have that calling to go back and do that again. It has nothing to do with Arnold's personality because he's a wonderful, charismatic, you know, charming guy that I look up to a great deal. But he's moved on and I've moved on. But I think about it a lot. I think about, okay, what? Because I could easily pick up the phone and go, hey, Arnold, you know, this next picture you have, how about we get together again? And I just don't. And I love my life the way it is now. And I love the history that I had with Arnold. And um, I wish him the best. We see each other once in a while. I, I lived up or I live up in, in Bend in Portland, Oregon, and would work in Los Angeles quite often. So I drive past Sacramento while he was governor. And I would call and say, hey, I'm going to be coming by tomorrow at you know, two o'clock. Are you going to be around? And sometimes he would, yeah, come on in. And we'd, we'd go to the gym together. Sometimes we would eat we would hang out we would talk if he had the time because arnold loves to just talk story he loves to just hang out with his friends smoke his stogies talk stories and uh, go to the gym laugh play chess you know eat and and his foods that he loves so much and, uh, and and arnold lives life and it's really nice to once in a while still see him i haven't seen him for a few years but i hopefully will be in la at the same time he is at some point we'll get together that's so great. I mean, well, first of all, yes, I have to, you know, say that, uh, um, you know, thank you for saying what you said about Stan Winston, because he's some, you know, he's somebody that, I mean, I have no aspirations to get into that, you know, particular part of, mm-hmm. of the industry, but he is just someone that I just so appreciate and, and, am, you know, admire. And, and so, you know, his passing in 2008 was, um, you know, really, really, really hard and, and something that, uh, you know, I think affected a lot of people, but, um, you know, he left behind this incredible legacy that, uh, continues today. And I, and, and I mean, I showed the film to the, to my friend the other day and, you know, that's something that he commented on. He commented on the effects and the, and the Uh animatronics. And I was just like, yeah, man, that's just a, that's just a testament to the talent that was involved. So, and then, of course, I told him about, you know, that's the same guy that worked on Jurassic Park, that worked on yep. Aliens, that worked on. I, 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 I went down the whole list, and he was just like, man, like he's a legend. I'm like, yeah, he is a well, legend. Yeah, that's that's what you. Uh, well, that's why his his company now, when he turned it over 
to the guys that helped him for so many years, they renamed it Legacy. You know, and it's uh, Stan was back then, and his shop, the, the Legacy shop now to this day, is really front runner best effects you can find. So, you know, back in 1984, that was as good as it got. You couldn't get it any better back then. And the shop legacy is still performing at that level today. Yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. It's, it, it, it is great stuff. And it's the, the fact that you said that you can just call up Arnold and be like, Hey, are, are you free? Like there's yeah. like, I have so many friends that I just know that like would be like, are you kidding me? You, yeah, you just have Arnold on. yeah. Somebody will steal my phone now. It's like, what is it under? Why would he put up that name under? Yeah. <laughs> So something that I feel like definitely is not talked about enough. And um, you're the only uh, second guest that I've had on that has been a part of um, all three of these productions is uh, uh, T2-3D, Battle Across Time. Right. Um, and it's something that, you know, because it's come and gone in two of the three locations that it was put in, um, it's something that I feel like now, because it's only available, you can only go to see it now in Japan, um, which is like just, it's so heartbreaking. But it's just, it's something that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough. Was, was that uh, show something that was of equal caliber to Terminator 2? Or did you feel like this is something that, yes, it's a theme park attraction, but we're not approaching this the exact same way we approached the feature length film? It was approached at that level, if not higher, keep in mind, it had a gigantic budget for a behind, you know, it's, just, it's a film that is attached to a live action show. And originally it started out, it was James Cameron was writing it. He was producing it. He wasn't going to be there directing it every night. Somebody else was coming in to do that. Well, after the first couple of nights we filmed, Jim said, you know what? I'm going to take over. And then Jim finished it. But it was huge effects, huge visual, huge practical effects, stunts. It was all done on, on um, you know, wide, the wide, uh, uh, what is it, 60 millimeter? What is it? What am I trying to think here? How come I'm, I'm blanking out on the, on the wide format? That might so, be at 60 millimeter. That sounds... Yeah. <clears throat> and it was just you know, giant cameras to run this, this, this big, thick film through. This was back in the film days before we went digital. And... It was done, you know, to that level of Terminator 2, if not bigger. And I had, wow. uh, I worked with uh, a couple of the theme parks because they wanted to do really good Arnold doubles. And I had been doing Arnold prosthetics for all the doubles we've used over the years, for years. And so <clears throat> I worked on making up some Arnold prosthetics that were reusable, that were made out of a, a rubber material instead of... Um, almost like a mask, like you'd put a rubber mask on and you would take these prosthetics and you'd lightly tack them onto the face and on, you know, up on a live action show, they looked pretty good, like it was Arnold. And they did that in several locations for a while. And then I think they just said, forget it. This is too much work, costing too much money, too much time. But um, I did see the one at Universal. I never saw the other ones. Oh, okay. The one in uh, Hollywood? The one in Hollywood, yes. The Universal at Hollywood. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, what's really um, a lot of people don't like know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know that 
you would think the Hollywood location was the original spot, but it, it, it actually went here to Orlando. Um, mm-hmm. This was the original location. And I'm actually like, I'm wearing my Terminator 2 3D hat right now as I talk to you. Like, that was the reason I had passes to Universal. When I became the diehard Terminator fan I was, like, I just mm-hmm. realized how, how special that was because... I've, I, I've talked to so many fans that never had the opportunity to go to it. And I'm, and I'm just like, Oh man, you missed out on yeah. one hell of an attraction. Yeah. The, the, the mixing of the 3d that you're watching with the practical effects was pretty seamless. It was, it was, you know, it, it, it it's a shame that it never got the update that I feel like a lot of uh, other yeah. attractions at universal got because mm-hmm. in 20, uh, 16 going into 2017, which was its final year. I mean, you definitely could be like, wow, these are, these are old school 3d effects. It, it's, yeah. it's a shame they never brought that film up to, up to, you know, modern day 3d effects, but. Right. Yeah. They probably looked at it at one point and said, okay, what kind of legs does this have still? How many more years are we going to be able to make money off of this? And how much will it cost if we do update it? Mm, it's not worth it. You know, that's probably what went down it's such a shame it's i mean they're still making terminator movies so it's i mean it's but as you know there's a it's a real you know crapshoot whether they're they are critically acclaimed and make money or not so the term as you've mentioned in your podcast many times the terminator franchise really has to have success with this next one that james cameron produced you know and i i would hope that it does i know nothing about it i'm looking very forward to seeing it and I can't imagine it not being outstanding if James Cameron had final say on it. Yeah, no, I mean, that is something that I realized of like the, like I had the epiphany of like, man, if this thing falters, uh, it, it literally like, I would, I would think it's dead in the water at that point. And yeah. then from that point on, it would be a few years until a studio came along and said, Hey, remember that movie from 1984? Mm-hmm. Let's put our hands on that. And, uh, you know, what is your like, like, what is your take on on stuff like that, where um, these classics are 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 made and then yeah. decades it's, later yep. they get the they get the polish of Hollywood. And it, and most of the time, every once in a while, you'll you'll get that superior remake. Um, yep. But for the majority of those times, it's just like, why did you even bother? Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings with that because I know because I think of this as a business, you know, people are out there to make money. And if a studio thinks they can make money right now, the Terminator franchise is so expensive between its rights. And if you want Arnold to be part of it and you know, you have to pay so many people that don't even show up on the set when you're filming a Terminator film now that it's so expensive that to recoup your money is, is, you know, it's kind of now or never. I think when you've got Linda Hamilton and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and, and uh, James Cameron, that's, you know, that's a pretty darn successful trio right there. So anything beyond now, I don't know. And, and I have mixed feelings with that. You know, I've worked on films like Total Recall that go to a, to a, a reboot and they, they are, they fail. You know, it's, it, um, I have mixed feelings with it because the Planet of the Apes that, you know, is so cheesy with its effects from the 60s and 70s is so dear to our heart that even when you see the $200 million version, with all the great makeups from Rick Baker and all the great effects, you kind of go, Hmm, okay. Do we really need this? Is this working? Do we have to have this movie right now? 
So yeah. I have mixed feelings with it, but I also understand it's a business. If a studio thinks they can extract some more money out of a franchise, they're going to either make another one or they're going to reboot it. Yeah. Uh, and this will go on for our whole lives and way beyond. You know, we're going to wait till Terminator is being rebooted the fourth time, you know, in 2050 or something. Who knows? <laughs> you know, it's, it, if, if there's money to be made by a new generation or by new effects or making it cool and hip in a new time, people at the studios are going to do it. Yeah. You know, that's something that also is is uh, really interesting with, with, with your career is that you did um, all of the Cameron-directed Terminators, and then the last one that you did was uh, Rise of the Machines. Right. And, um, you know, my feelings toward that film aside, I, I, I do think it is the best of the, the non-Cameron yeah. sequels. Um, and that's also a film that still has, when I watch it, I still see... I, I definitely see a lot more visuals than I, than I did in the other films, but I still see moments where I'm like, okay, that looks like it was actually practically done. Um, and so I can appreciate it for that. You know, it's, it's once right. you get into salvation and, and Genesis um, that I really start to fall off and I'm just like, okay, this is so, <laughs> why was why was why was Terminator Three the last one? Like, were you just done with the with the idea of working on essentially the same thing? Yeah, I was called um, to do Salvation. the The folks at uh, at Stan Winston Studios Legacy called and said, "Hey, Jeff, do you want to do this one with it?" And I said, "Hey, it sounds interesting." Well, then I had gotten a call from um, uh, actually Jonathan Mostow again who was doing surrogates with Bruce Willis, which didn't turn out to be such a great film, but it sounded like a lot of fun. And it was something that it was a big, big makeup film. And um, I liked working with Jonathan Mostow. I found him to be quite the gentleman and a class act as a, as a director. So I chose to do that. So I, I had to turn down the, uh, the, the potential of working on salvation. But, um, and then after that, I was like, you know, okay, I've, I've had enough of these. So I never searched for it. It was never called to me again to work on them. But I feel that because I just kind of fell off the radar when it came to the Terminator films, you know, and I went on my own career doing different films. I worked with The Rock on seven films. and I've now been, uh, I, I did almost 30 years of, of films and then was called to come over and do Lost with my friend uh, Steve Laporte. And I loved it over here in Hawaii. And then I did a movie called uh, 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 Battleship over here. And then they started up um, Hawaii Five-0. Uh, TV, well, I did the first season. I loved it. I loved the people. I loved being over here. And lots of makeup effects. It kept me very, very busy. And we're just finishing our ninth season now. And I'll be coming back for season 10. <laughs> Congrats. Wow. So I, mean, if I, I don't know if I'll ever department head another film again. If I don't, it's 30 years of doing it in over 40 films. I can check that off my bucket list. If I choose not to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, something that you um, uh, made a point to remind me of, and, and then something that I do want to hear you talk about is the um, 25 year anniversary DVD you said about the Terminator. Yes, it, I was uh, approached about oh, 11, 12 years ago um, by Van Ling. Van Ling is one of the effects producers at. Um, at uh, Lightstorm for James Cameron. And the backstory on him apparently 
it was a, I think it was a Comic-Con. Van had uh, built a, um, um, an alien creature suit that James Cameron saw and he liked it so much, he hired him to work at Lightstorm Entertainment. And I don't know if Van is still there, but he was there for many, many years, very involved with all of the different projects that, that Jim did, uh, especially the DVDs. And Van said, hey, we're doing a 25-year special edition on Terminator. We'd like to interview you and hire you to do makeup on all the other people. I go, Great. I love the idea. So they interviewed me and they, but then I got to see all these people. We had Rick Rosevich come in who plays the boyfriend of Bess Mata yes. in the beginning who gets thrown through the window and then killed by the Terminator. Mm -hmm. We had Bess Mata, who is that girl who with a big fluffy curly dark brown hair that, uh, gets killed as one of the uh, uh, Arnold's not sure or the Terminator's not sure if she's Sarah Connor in the apartment or not. We had um, um, who else we had? We were going to get Michael Bean. I was looking very forward to that because Michael was a super, super good guy. I like Michael a lot. We clicked well and um, also had Donna Smith, who was the production manager. So all these people started coming in. So great to see them again. And I had mentioned to Van, I go, you know, what would be fun to do is to go around and try to find all these old locations and get it on video. And he said, let's do it. So we drove around several days by my memory of all these locations. Okay, the first Sarah Connor house, the Alamo gun store. Um, we tried to find, tried for days to try to find the culvert that Sarah and Kyle go down to, and she dresses his arm wound, and they talk about a lot of things there overnight. And that was a, it was a really cool practical location that I couldn't find in Griffith Park. I, we just searched everything and everywhere and couldn't find it. I think it's just been removed and they put a road there or something. Um, Tech Noir walked oh. into, oh man, I get goosebumps right now. Walked <laughs> into what used to be Tech Noir, and it, back 11 years ago, I don't know what it is now, it was a jewelry store. And I walked in and I looked around. Now, when we did Tech Noir, it was all black and it was all, you know, neon and looked like a club the way we decked it out. And it was all white, white walls, white ceiling, all these jewelry cases in there. And it was so strange to go, no, this, this right here is where Linda Hamilton was sitting in the chair where Arnold was shot her. Right here is where everybody fell. Right here is where Arnold, you know, uh, got shot and, and fell out the window. And uh, that was so cool to go back there. But many different locations. We went to Big Jeff's restaurant, which I believe was a, a, was a, um, a big boy restaurant. But that was still there. And uh, oh, we went to the Tiki Motel. <laughs> it's so cool to go back there. And I would kind of MC and go, okay, you know, this is, this is where we did this. And this year, this is where I all drove in, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if they ever used it. I found out that there is some of this footage attached to a 25 year special edition and I've tried to find it and it's very hard to find. It's not in Japanese or not, uh, you know, in some, some format that won't be read by DVDs over here, but I'm going to find it and see if all of that is in there. I thought it was going to be a special one that was just dedicated to all the behind the scenes stuff, but I guess it's little bits and pieces that they threw in there. So it does exist in, in a certain, certain level. I just haven't seen it. Um, well, cause what's, I don't know of any besides a special feature called, um, like Terminator retrospective, um, 
that's been on like the Blu-rays and whatnot. I haven't heard of anything like to this extent of of um, in-depth kind of interviews yeah. with the and Terminator. I, and I don't know if because this was this turned into a very big thing with a large budget of getting all these interviews and having a crew multiple days doing these interviews and then going around. This was all funded by, I believe it was either the studio or Lightstorm. And I don't know if they just cut most of it or all of it out, but I've been by reading up on it the last couple of days on the internet, I see that there, it came out about the right time. I think it was 2011 as a special edition, uh, 25 year release of the Terminator. And it's supposedly on the backside of that. So I'll, I'll find it. I'll look to see, you know, if this, is it something that, oh, wow, they used a lot of this. This is great. Or, oh, what a shame. So much of this ended up on the floor. You know? mm, man. Yeah, that's something that, like, is on my bucket list. You talk about how you've checked stuff off of yours. It's, mm-hmm. it's finding as many of these uh, locations <laughs> that I can. And, and Tech Noir is, uh, you know, up there. I mean, the fact that um, it is an actual location, like, uh, I think when I was growing up, I just assumed because I started, you know, getting really into movies and, and, and production and whatnot. And I, mm-hmm. and I just assumed that it was a set that they had constructed. Normally it would be because it wasn't that large. You know, it was uh, if you go into it, it's very if you and I walked in there together, you'd be able to visualize it. But it would be hard because it's it's a it's a different, you know, it's a child that's grown up now. It's, it's completely different. Yeah. It's, it's the whole vibe of the place. It's like. Are you sure this is it? Went to the <laughs> restaurant, the, uh, the the Italian restaurant where Sarah Connor learns about the first Sarah Connor that's killed. And she, yes. yeah, gets on the phone. I think with uh, can't remember who she gets on the phone with, but um, yeah, that restaurant went there. So there's many of these places that still exist. Of course, uh, all the downtown you know streets and and the the waterworks, the electric company that we shot all of the, uh, uh, the initial car chase when Arnold has burned his eyebrows off. He's now in the cop car and he finds them. They've stolen this other car and we, we begin the chase. That's at the electric company downtown LA, which all of that is still there. Ah, man, that is so awesome. It's something that I think that I'm so surprised that someone hasn't come along and, actually like decided like we need to kind of uh retroactively turn this back into the mm-hmm. tech war. like we need to sell this jewelry business and we need to make this a spot because i mean you would attract so many people oh, you, you, you would and who knows what that portion because downtown los angeles has a, a a history of you know falling apart and then getting getting um fixed up again and i think it's in the process of being fixed up now so where it was literally slums and heroin addicts back 30 years ago it might be coffee shops and uh, you know uh, cool places to hang out now so it might work out well and also to make it an 80s bar you know make a theme how cool would that yeah. be oh my god that going there why yeah, you dress in the eighties. You listen to eighties music. You know, it's, it would be. Of course, it's easy for me. I'm I'm a, I'm a child that you know the eighties were very much part of my life and career. So it's uh, 
maybe you'd only have people in their 50s and 60s in their house sad. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You look at stuff like, I mean, we're in that era where it's nostalgia times a thousand. And it's, yeah. you look at Stranger Things and you look at, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, just Stranger Things alone is just, mm-hmm. it's definitely something that I feel like and vinyl coming back. And it's, it's something yeah. that I feel like definitely has um, potential and uh, you know, something else that I think has potential that uh, just hearing the way you talk, I know you're, even though you've worked on all this stuff, you're a fan. Um, oh, very much so. And that's awesome to hear. It's yeah, like, you're I'm, not blinded by the fact that you worked on it and no, I'm, it. I'm hugely, well, I'm very passionate about my job and, and just life in general, but you know, the fact that, that someone named Stan Winston, you know, said, gave a thumbs up to me, huge difference in my life. Someone named Arnold Schwarzenegger said, yeah, I'll hire you on the second film now and the third and the fourth and the fifth, the James Cameron's, you know, all these people that uh, I have to keep pinching myself and go, all right, yes, I might be doing something right, but I'm also never want to lose track of the fact that I have been very, very fortunate to be part of these movies. I, where I am over here in Hawaii, you know, it's a TV show. Not a lot of people that, are, that live over here have traveled much in the way of doing films because it's a local crew here for the most part. Well, the guys on the show look up to me like, oh my God, he, this guy knows Arnold. This guy did these movies. This guy did Predator. This guy did, did, did True Lies and the Terminator films, you know? It makes me kind of a, you know, a makeup rock star, <laughs> which I don't let it go to my head, but at the same time, I want to appreciate the fact that not every makeup artist is treated that way or thought that way, thought of that way. Yeah, no. And I mean, it, it, it's just where I was uh, uh, going with that is like, it's, it's, you know, something that you don't see a lot of. And, and I, and I just want to ask you why you don't think that that is, is, um, you know, I'm a, or I was, I'm not so much anymore. Like I was a fan of the walking dead, the, the mm-hmm. TV show. Yeah. Um, as I was. And, and, uh, fans of that show had their own podcast and they did kind of breakdowns of the entire uh, seasons that would come out. And at one point they reached such a popularity that they created, and it still goes on to this day, a convention for (laughs) walking dead. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is also like on my bucket list. Why is there not something for that in terms of, the Terminator franchise. Why is there not a gathering place? Uh, I, I maybe... think that there is. I, I know that uh, when I was listening to Peter Kent's um, uh, podcast, he was talking about, he bumps into people like, like Linda Hamilton and Eddie Furlong and, uh, and Robert Patrick at various conventions. Cause Peter will go there as I'm was Arnold stuntman. And, you know, you get a booth and you sign pictures and take pictures with people and such. So it tells me that there is, and I don't know if it's just connected with some other kind of Comic-Con type event, you know. That's, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair or something like that. Yes, that is, that is what it is connected with. So you'll have this kind of giant thing that is all-encompassing, and you'll right. have a little small section for the Terminator. What right. these guys did was they, it's called Walker Stalker Con, and it's literally for the walking dead only you might get people you might get people from like other things but the majority of it is dedicated to the walking dead so why is there not a 
dedicated Terminator convention of getting everybody like you, like like uh, uh, Bess, like Rick, like Michael Bean, like get everybody. Right. And that's something that is like shocked me to, like to this day. It, 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 it doesn't have its own thing. And I'm, right. and I'm, well, and I'm, I think it's more of what's current, you know, with the walking dead, the walking dead became such a phenomenon and was currently filming still is. It's not the same show it used to be, but still it it's happening still as we speak. Well, the Terminator really, you know, it's, it's, it's great days are possibly behind it. And whether it's Star Trek movies, whether it's, um, you know, Walking Dead, whatever, once you get a few years out after they've come and gone, they start to lose, you start to lose fans. You know, it's like I was involved with, with um, uh, Lost and Daniel Day Kim, who played uh, Chin Ho Kelly on, on 5-0 and played, uh, I think it was Jin on Lost, I said, do you still, what's, what's the proportion of fans for Lost and for 5 He goes, ah, a couple of years after Lost ended, I found that they kind of died out and the, the 5 fans picked up. So it kind of is what's current. I did three of the Star Trek films and the Star Trek, the Trekkies were crazy. They would come around to locations we'd shoot at and they would literally have 15 t-shirts on. And they want nothing more than you to see them pull each T-shirt up to show you which convention that was. Okay, this was San Francisco, 1989. This is, you know, and the, the Trekkies were like, they were the beginning of the, 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 the crazy, but very crazy, not in a bad way. It can be in a bad way, but you have really enthusiastic fans and that becomes their life. You know, it's, it, they're so passionate about it that, that they come across as being like, oh boy, I don't want to sit next to that person on a bus. But... <laughs> You know, and the Trekkies really started all of that. And I don't think that they exist like they did in their heyday because the Star Trek films have kind of petered out. You know, there's new Star Trek films, but they're not that same cast. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. I mean, hey, look, I'm uh, I'm I'm that that fan, but that's who I am with with Terminator. So I mean, right. if we were ever to sit on a bus together, ho- hopefully you wouldn't. Oh, yeah. judge, no, no. You know what? I'm the guy that all joking aside, I love passion in people, no matter what it is. And if I find, I mean, I've sat down next to, okay, here's an example that little things that just kind of woke my, my brain up to, to the enthusiasm of, 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 of uh, of, of people for films. I was finishing up one of the Star Trek films and I had a Star Trek jacket on. This is probably in the eight, late eighties, early nineties. And I had a Star Trek crew jacket on. And I went into a Seven Eleven, and there was a couple in there and they were, they were a couple that just stopped dead in their tracks and stared at me. And they go, where did you get that jacket? I go, oh, it's a crew jacket from the film I just finished. And suddenly these were huge Trekkie fans. So I sat there talking with them for a while and realizing how incredibly enthusiastic they were about this. And I had so much information. I mean, I've, I'd done Spock's makeup probably 70, 80 times you know, with ears and everything. And it was part of my childhood too. My, you know, so when I would go and visit my dad and he was on Mission Impossible at Paramount Studios, we'd walk over to the Star Trek stage and I would meet all the people from the original Star Trek show. I remember meeting Bill Shatner and looking up at him. And I was a kid at the time going, wow, 
that guy looks like a movie star, you know, in his tight little spandex outfit and standing there like the, the captain that he is. Well, then later in years, I started doing the Star Trek films, which was incredible closure for me to then suddenly be working with and on these people for the Star Trek films that they were doing. But I was around that my whole life, so I got kind of used to it. But going back to this story with these people, I'm talking to them for a while, and so so uh, excited for their excitement, I go, come on out here. And we go out there, and I had a bucket, like a, like a big uh, a fried chicken bucket, filled with Spock ears. And I said, hold your hands up. And I grabbed a handful of them. I said, these are original Spock ears. They haven't been put on. These are virgin ones, because uh, Leonard Nimoy would always ask for the ears to be taken off very carefully and put in a Ziploc bag, and then he would auction them off to charities. But these were original ones. And I handed them, and I might as well have handed these people $100,000. They almost peed in their pants. They were so excited, you know? So I have to keep that in mind, that what I do oftentimes is incredibly important to certain people because it's part of their fantasy world. It's part of the passion that gets them up in the morning and helps them go to bed at night. Yeah, like, isn't that crazy? Like, do you have... Like, do you have something like that or are be, or because you're involved in the industry itself, it's kind of hard to be that way? It, you know, I still have prosthetics. I'm sure I still have Terminator stuff. You know, I, I keep all these things on each show and then, and, and then every few years I go through. Oh, here's an example. I feel terrible about this. All right. And you're going to say, Jeff, why did you do that? I got uh, about five years ago, I said, okay, time to clean out all my stuff. I put in ads in all the makeup journals and the makeup artist magazine and, and makeup union down in LA and said, Jeff Dawn is cleaning house, cleaning a lot of his makeup supplies out. Come everything's free to makeup artists. Well, I had 15 makeup artists all waiting there at the storage area. And I went, okay, Everything on this wall, it was a lot of stuff. Makeup supplies, prosthetics, all kinds of stuff. I just wanted to get rid of it. I said, it's all yours. Just take what you want. Just don't get too crazy. Don't take it all, but just take what, what's fair. Well, all these people left with cars filled with things. Okay. Cut to about a year later, I get a call from a guy named, I think it was, his last name was some other name, but his first two names were Kyle Reese. And he said, Mr. He's from England. He said, Mr. Dawn, I, 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 I'm, my name is Kyle Reese. And he told me whatever his last name was. I was named because of the Terminator films, because of the character there. And I just wanted to call and talk with him. So I talked with him for quite a while. And I went, you know what I used to have? I don't know if I still have it. The stamp that I had made that was the barcode that I put on Michael Bean's arm that he had from the future wars, you know, the, from the, the concentration camps. I said, yeah. I think I still have that, that. If I can find that in my storage area, I'll send it to you. It's all yours, free. Well, it went with that group of things. I had given that away because it was just another, oh, what's this stamp? I can't, I'm not going to use this stamp again. Well, maybe I use it on Terminator, but ah, it's just in my way now. I'll get rid of it. And yes, I gave it to makeup artists that hopefully will appreciate it, but Something like that I feel terrible about. I wish I could have given that because that was the perfect thing to give to the perfect person. It would have meant so much to him. You know? Man. So I'm a little more careful now. <laughs> like, don't just, yeah, that goes in the garbage. That gets given away. You know? So, like, a lot of that stuff is, um, like, uh, like 
the stuff that did survive the the production, which that always blows my mind too. Like I just read uh, uh, an article somewhere of um, they just started, I think that uh, new museum in Los Angeles, the Academy. Um, right. And didn't they, uh, didn't they find one of the original uh, sharks from Jaws in like a junkyard? <laughs> yeah, I heard, yes. And yes. that is just like, how does that, how does that even happen? Like, how does that iconic thing end up in a junkyard? I know. Well, for years, um, there was Planet Hollywood. And Planet Hollywood, because Arnold was involved, I actually bought a, a large amount of stock when it first became public, um, which later became a big mistake. But um, when Planet Hollywood first opened up, it was the new, new thing on the block. You know, it was so cool. Cool to be seen there, cool to be there. And the whole idea of the memorabilia. So they had people that would search the world for memorabilia. And they contacted me several times about different things. And of course it was current things that were being used, you know, Arnold's boots for this and, and, uh, you know, uh, Stallone's bow from, from, from uh, uh, Rambo, you know, those kind of things, but also old time props from the twenties and thirties and forties. And they found some really, really cool stuff, stuff that was just buried away or people wanted to sell and they would buy it. They would go to auctions and they would buy this stuff and they would put it in there. So the planet Hollywood became the best museums on the planet for a lot of that stuff and who knows what happened to them since you know when they when they filed chapter 11 i'm sure they had to all that stuff went back into uh, being uh, sold so went back into private investors or private collectors but that was a fun time to see all that stuff popping up everywhere well i do know um there is a there is a uh, planet hollywood still in uh orlando here uh, uh it's uh part of disney springs um, yes yeah, I, I do know that it is there, but yeah, like I do recall hearing that as well. Like they were just kind of not as big as they were. And I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by that because I, when I go to this one, it's, it's just like, yeah, you are transported to, uh, <laughs> to like this ultimate fantasy of like, you can walk around and just see this stuff. And yeah. I mean, some of it feels like, are like, are you kidding me? That's actually it. And I, and I'm, and I'm kind of hesitant to believe that it is, yeah. it, but well, and I don't know if there's like one of something that they found, I would assume that that would go into one of their flagship places back in the day. But when we were filming different projects, you know, it would be like, okay, um, Arnold wants 12 of these sets of boots that he's going to wear in last action hero to go to planet Hollywood. Well, he never wore any of them. They were made brand new for planet Hollywood. You know, and they would go up there as these are the boots that Arnold wore in Last Action Hero, along yeah. with the other twelve locations that have it. So, the, yes, they are the boots, but they're not the exact same pair. You know. Yeah. So yeah. Would, and I understand that, but so it, it makes you wonder about some of those things. You know, the one-offs. It'd be kind of hard to then just build a new one and say, okay, this is Cleopatra's dress. You know, from Cleopatra. Well, wait a minute. I saw it at three other places. How can that be? So I think those one-offs would stay as one in one flagship place. And then as movies came along and people like Stallone and, and Bruce Willis and Arnold were doing them, they would say, okay, this, here's the laundry list of what we need for the planet Hollywoods when we're done. Man, man. Oh man. Oh man. It's just so crazy. And it's just, uh, uh, it, it, 
this has been truly like like an honor talking to you like the fact that um you know you are who you are and and uh you created what you created and the legacy that you're gonna leave behind i mean if you are like you said possibly done with film i, I mean you left one hell of a legacy in just terms of what is on film and for people to see and to examine and i know i've done that i've looked at you know stills of that stuff and you know all those photos you sent me i, I was just mm-hmm. looking at them and and, <laughs> and just in, in in like awe like it, 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 it's just fascinating stuff and um i just wanted to wrap this stuff up with uh like a couple of fun just out of out of left field kind of questions um sure that maybe has nothing to do with terminator um I'm always curious to know because you are in the industry. What is like, what is one of your favorite movies of all time that you um, didn't even work on? Watch or to work on. Well, that you didn't work on, like just a oh, movie I, that you are a fan of. I can watch fight club over and over. I can watch gladiator over and over. Um, I'm such a f- huge film fanatic. I, I go to see, I went and saw a documentary all by myself in a little theater yesterday, just sitting there. The only one in there. You know, I mean, I just, I love film. I love TV also, but I just don't have the time. But as an Academy member, they send you 70, 80 DVDs a year, which, you know, people think, oh, poor Jeff, but it, it is somewhat of a burden. You've got to watch these things. You know, if you want to be a, a good voter and to, to really look at all the projects, you that's a lot of viewing. And I work 70, 80 hours a week. I mean, I get up at three, four o'clock in the morning and I get home go to sleep at around nine at night and it's all work. It's all work. Get up, get ready to go to work, come home. That's the way the film business is. You work horrendous hours. That's the reason people in the film business make money. It's not because we have a huge, a a plumber that I hire or someone working on my car or somebody that uh, a carpenter, they make more per hour than I do a lot more, but I work a lot more hours and so, you know, at the end of the day, I can afford a nicer house, but I don't have friends and family and people that know what I look like, <laughs> you know? So the, uh, getting back to the, 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 the favorite films, um, there's so many um, that, that I absolutely love. Uh, of course, James Cameron, anything he does is, you know, the, David Fincher, um, Christopher Nolan, directors that just do crazy out of this world stuff did you ever um did you ever see a this is like in my top 10 favorite films of all time did you ever see came out in 2010 and it was actually a big oscar contender it was 127 hours oh yeah yes and it's that that fascinates me because a it's a true story and b it's uh, i'm a climber or i used to be a climber and and I like camping and I like adventure and I like, you know, going out on being on my own. And that story was uh, pretty horrendous. Oh my God, it was. And I mean, even at the end there, when you get to that final scene, I mean, that is, I mean, it's small work, but I mean, even that, like, that is really awesome. Um, you know, practical effects that they did there yeah. with, with the arm cutting scene. And I mean, I'll tell you <laughs> when, when he cuts the nerve, and you hear like the guitar in the back uh-huh. when it touches the nerve. Uh-huh. Like, oh man, that movie is just like that's an experience for me. Like when I watched that, I, I like I left the theater and I was just like, like 
I I just view life differently. And 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 when you mm-hmm. have like a movie like that that does something like that, that's special. And um, like, is there any movie that did that for you? Like, you left the theater and you were just like, that wasn't just a normal movie. That was something um, that. Yeah, um, Into the Wild, true story of Chris McCandless, who just goes out into the wild and wants to be a free spirit and ends up dying of starvation. You know, I read that book probably two or three times, saw the movie once or twice. It's something that resonates there. And I think it, that's what it is. It touches you. You you put yourself in that character's position. I'm the guy all alone, going to die, got to cut my arm off. You know, and I read that book too, the 127 hours. And it, it uh, the, the guy who did that wrote the, the book and he goes into quite a bit of detail of what it felt like to cut that nerve. It's like, oh, <laughs> so it's yeah. like bad enough to take your, your knife and sharpen it on a rock and then cut your arm off and break the bone, not to mention, because you got to break the bone, try to break your own, your own arm bone to save yourself and then cut your arm off and cut the nerve. Like, ah, all right. I, I don't think I'll do that. Tell me where that, that, that uh, crack in the earth is so I don't have to go there. Yeah. Right. Like, oh man. I mean, ah. I do think Franco was snubbed that year. Personally, that's just me. Um, you know, all respects mm-hmm. to Colin Firth and, uh, you know, his great job stuttering. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I personally think that Franco was totally snubbed for that because that was just a, that was a performance. That, to me, that transcended performing. He wasn't performing. He was, he yes. was in there. And, um, yeah, just that movie is so special to me. But, um is there any movie that, that has those kinds of effects, makeup effects that you didn't work on that after you saw it, you were like, damn it, I should have done that. Yeah. I look at a, I look at a movie like Apocalypto, um, which was, yeah, Mel Gibson. And at the time I watched it, I was, cause I'm, you know, I'd like to tout myself as this department head that does big projects. Okay. I can handle any project. I was, I was prepping a movie called Crusades which Arnold was going to do in Europe years ago before Coralco Pictures, who was funding it, went bankrupt. But I was over there for several weeks prepping it. And it was such a monstrosity of a period film. They had 12 people hired. They were planning on hiring 12 people just to remove animal dung. Ah. <laughs> and they were going to have base, this base camp set up like a military you know, city, because there, we wouldn't be near big cities. So you'd have to have 300 crew members and, and, uh, and 5,000 extras and all these people living out there. It was just so massive. So I was prepping that for months and it, it never went, went ahead because they, they filed for chapter 11. But when I saw Apocalypto, I thought, okay, this is intimidating. Every one of these multiple characters have hours and hours of tattoos and prosthetics and and wounds on them. The whole movie was one gigantic makeup effect. And yeah, you've got your Lord of the Rings and you've got all these movies like that, but for some reason, Apocalypto, and of course it didn't have any Academy consideration because that was the year Mel Gibson went out and said some bad things in front of people and got drunk and and was blacklisted from from the the Academy and from the the business for a while. So, you know, he kind of shot his own foot off there, but, Academy Awards, including Best Makeup. It's it's just it, you know it's truly been such a like a fantastic time talking to you and um, 
you know, I'm glad that we are able to stay in touch because I definitely will want to do that and, uh, you know, see what, what kind of new, um, exciting adventures you're getting yourself on. Um, and, uh, I just wanted to say thank you for, you know, for your work. Thank you for, uh, coming on the podcast. It's, uh, I say it every time, but you know, it just, it adds more validity to this, you know, and the fact that I'm talking to people that were on those films that matter so much to not only me, but everybody that listens to this particular podcast. It's just, it's so, it's just, it's, it's adding so much value to what uh, Terminator 101 stands for. So thank you. Well, you are welcome. And thank you for creating this platform. I'd be happy to come back. I have a million other stories from other Arnold pictures, other Terminator pictures. Oh, a quick thing that I saw as a uh, trivia on, on the, the, the IMDb site that was somewhat inaccurate. Uh-oh. Um, when we were working, you there? Yeah, no, no, I am. I'm saying, uh-oh, like, uh-oh, it's like inaccurate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of that. I read tons of that stuff on Terminator that's inaccurate. It gets it kind of right. But um, when we were on Terminator 1, it was Arnold's full torn apart face. We're waiting for the, the reset of the truck, which is taking like 30 minutes each time. And... I said to Arnold, we should go to that restaurant over there and just walk in. Just walk in the way you are now. I mean, he's ripped to shreds. His face is torn up. You know, this is him get out of the truck scene. And Arnold, myself, and about two or three other people walk over to this restaurant. It's like 10 o'clock at night, downtown LA. And we walk in through the front door. And as we walk in, there's a woman on a payphone. And she's talking to somebody and she looks at us, walk in, she looks at Arnold. People don't really know who Arnold is at this point. He'd been in one Conan film. And she goes, oh my God, a punk band just walked in. You should see these guys. That's what she says to, to, to this person she's talking to. And Arnold walks over and looks out over the restaurant and there's you know, 40, 50 people in there. And he says, and he stands there with his hands on his hips and he goes, How's it going, everybody? Good to see you. Have a good dinner, you know? And, and then he turns around to walk out. And everybody's just, what the hell? This bloody metal-faced guy. And as he's walking past the woman on the phone, I'm right behind him. He takes, he goes over and he takes the phone out of her hand. And he goes over and he kisses her on the cheek. No words. And then just hands the phone back to her and then just walks out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And. It was like, okay, there's a moment I got to remember, you know, it was so cool because he didn't say anything other than, you know, hey, everybody have a good time. And then just walked out and people were like, what in the hell was that? Cause they didn't know we're filming down the street, you know, with downtown LA, who knows what's going to walk in there at 10 o'clock at night. Right. Wow. I mean, and <laughs> you like think about that and you're just like those people in there, they were part of like this really cool moment of like, movie production history yeah. you know what i mean it's yep ah. yep and i'm sure they all remember that moment but none of them know what it was all about you know they didn't tie it together yeah yeah like i wonder when the movie came out if they thought about it like that guy looks maybe but yeah kind of similar you know it's so so off their radar of putting it all together oh maybe six months ago when we were downtown they were filming and that's the same guy but I have so many stories like that that we could just do a whole episode on goofy, funny stories with Arnold. And oh, absolutely. The and, world of film. And, <laughs> and eventually when I get this convention going, you can, uh, you can, <laughs> you can have your own appearance at this convention. Cause like, I am so dead set on like, this blows my mind that 
I would love to. It's, it's, you know, I've been against those kind of things because I, I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of interviews. I do a lot of lecturing on department heading and things like that. I have a thing about it that I don't want to get paid. I, I, I feel that it's, it's my way of giving back and I love doing it. And I almost, if, if somebody said, oh, Jeff, you'd cover these, you make a lot of money at a booth. I don't want to do that. You know, I just call me stupid, but I just, it's, it's to the point still in my career where I want to give back and not take, because I've been able to extract so much good out of the career. It's when I have an opportunity to give back, to talk to people and to educate or to entertain, I love doing it. And that is a wrap guys. Thank you so much for listening. Jeff, thank you for coming on. You were so insightful uh, which is a big thing that I aim for with Terminator 101, as well as fun, uh, down-to-earth, humble, uh, funny, all that stuff. You were all of that. And I hope you guys enjoyed listening to our conversation. Um, where it ended was a really good stopping point. We did talk for, obviously, more time, but the recorded time went on for, I think, three more minutes or so. But unfortunately, the topic that we got onto was not completely covered because it was cut off. So I took that part out of the conversation. So for the most part, that is the entire recorded uh, conversation for your guys' listening pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you are enjoying the podcast and if you want to support the podcast and get even more content, you can head over to patreon.com slash t101podcast and you can choose from one of four levels and you will get exactly that. I'm constantly putting new content over there that is Patreon exclusive. Up to you guys if you want to support the podcast. If you don't, the podcast will always be free. Thank you so much. And until I talk to you guys next time, keep on terminating. <laughs>